You are listening to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by myself, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC and Jason Lemkin, godfather of Sass, as the founder of Sasta. Now, today's guest has been in the spotlight a little lately as he was featured on Mark Suster's Both Sides of the Table. And when we read that amazing story by Mark, we felt we had to have this guest on the show. Therefore, I'm so happy to welcome Mark Woodward, CEO at Invoker. Now, what do Invoker do? Well, essentially, we live in a fundamental mobile world and Invoker helps marketers drive revenue with cool intelligence. We'd also like to congratulate Mark and Invoker for their recent $30 million fundraise, which really is a testament to the company and Mark as a CEO to raise that money in this brutal fundraising environment. But before we dive in, if you would like to submit questions ahead of time, then add me on Snapchat at hstebbings, that's hstebbings with two Bs, or you can hit up Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. But time for the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Mark Woodward, CEO at Invoker. Well, Mark, a very warm welcome to the official Sasta podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Harry. Now, I'd like to also say a massive congratulations on the recent fundraise. But but let's take a step back and find out then how you came to be to be where you are today as CEO at Invoker. Yes, so I have uh, taken two other uh, companies, software companies, public in the past and sold both of them. The last company I ran was a um, cloud-based supply chain management platform called E2Open. And uh, we took that company private, sold it to a private equity firm in uh, a year ago, March. And I stayed on as CEO for a short period of time, hired my replacement, and then uh, transitioned out. And at the time, I really had no um, interest in taking a position immediately somewhere else. I contacted a few recruiters that I knew to tell them that I was interested in potentially looking at some other board seats. I sit on a couple of the company boards. And uh, as, as recruiters do basically started bombarding me with CEO opportunities. And I, you know, turned them all down. And I said, I'm really not interested. And I had one uh, good friend who's a recruiter who I've uh, known for a long time said, listen, Mark, I have this company I'm talking to that's going to be looking for a new CEO in about three weeks. So just promise me when I send you this deck, you just take a look at it because it's, it's one of the coolest companies I've ever seen. I said, all right, I'll, I'll take a look at it. He called me back the very next day and said, okay, I got the search. I'm going to send you the deck. I said, what happened to three weeks? He goes, well, they decided to move a little bit faster. He says, and in fact, the CEO, the current CEO is going to be up in the Bay Area uh, tomorrow. Could you meet with him? So I felt like I was completely being <laughs> you, you were hoodwinked there. Yeah, was, that's that. Yeah, and, uh, but, and so I went and spent, um, I met with Jason, the founder uh, and, and, and current CEO at the time. Uh, we were scheduled to meet for an hour. We ended up spending three hours together and just really kind of hit it off. I ended up meeting Mark Suster, one of the investors and board members, and and uh, went and met with the management team. And, and over the course of about six weeks or so, I just got to know the company very well and just really fell in love with the story and the, and the team and, and the board and it just decided to go ahead and get back to work. And so you mentioned Mark Suster there, and, and starting with a question from the main man, we crowdsource questions for today's show, and Mark was one of those that provided a question for you. So he wanted to know that you're fundamentally betting against the market belief that phones are dead. So, so how does it take this? How do you take this contrarian attitude, and how does it feel to take this approach? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question because I found you know during our most recent fundraising, especially people intuitively get it or they don't. And what some people say is, well, you know, I go to call my insurance agent or my bank and 
you know, they do everything to not talk to me. They try to get me to use automated, you know, IVRs and, and go online. And I said, you know what, you need to think about the actual relationship you're talking about, because when you are a customer, companies will attempt to get you to support yourself through online means, not talking to humans. But when you're a prospect or not yet a customer, that everything they do is to try to talk to you. So you think about it, you know, there's certain things, you know, what we call considered purchases that you don't buy online. Things like lots of kinds of insurance or financial products, you know, investments, automobiles, uh, high-end travel, education. There's all kinds of things where it's all about the conversation. And, and the thing that's really uh, kind of drove me to the company is a couple things that are happening in marketing right now. One is the rise of the mobile platform, right? There's more search and social and email done on mobile devices now than on desktop devices. As a result of that, advertising is now targeted more and more at the mobile market, at the mobile users. So there's more ad spending on mobile than there is on trying to you know, get, get people on desktops. Um, and that's driving a massive amount of phone calls to businesses. So uh, you know, the analysts that follow this market say that last year, 88 billion phone calls were made from smartphones to businesses. And that number is going to triple in the next couple of years. So uh, you know, this idea that phone call is dead is completely wrong. As a matter of fact, there's a significant resurgence in people using phones for making phone calls as opposed to just searching and texting and using applications. Mm -hmm. So you're not bullish on the rise of messaging as a customer support platform? I think as a customer support platform, absolutely. I think messaging or ch chat windows online and things like that, I, I think that will absolutely be the case. But that's for customer support, not customer acquisition. Okay. 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 That's very interesting. So, in terms of the customer acquisition, then we we've seen a, a huge amount of uh, change then with the mobile right with the rise of mobile. So, how has the rise of mobile then affected your sales strategy in terms of acquiring customers? Well, a lot of things that marketers want to know is what dollar did I spend or what action that I took you know, is cause someone to call our business. And, and that's kind of the, the bottom line. And for, for, for businesses that are call intensive, where it's all about the conversation, the majority of their marketing efforts are targeted at driving phone calls. And so with the rise of mobile and people doing more and more search and such on mobile, um, it actually gives the marketers far more information about the person than if they call off of a, a off of a landline or, you know, desk phone. So if somebody calls, from a mobile device into one of our customers, you know, we can tell basically who that person is and everything they've, they've been doing up until the moment of making that, that, that phone call. So uh, when we talk to our customers, the large majority of them initially are trying to get that attribution around search. What keyword did they enter when they searched for me? Where did they go? What did they look at? And you know, where, you know, what was the actions or the journey they took that finally caused them to call? So when we think about how we focus our, our business and our messaging. We talk about the rise of mobile, but that's more towards when we're talking to people about the market, not so much customers, because when we're talking to customers, they already know they have a problem because there's this big, as we say, this big hole in the marketing cloud. So today, the marketing technology platforms that you know all these digital marketers have is all around is all about analyzing and gathering data about what the customer is doing online, you know, what website they go to, what search criteria they use, what things they download. It's all the analytics around that. 
But as soon as the customer or prospect picks up a phone call, they completely lose track of where that person is and what happened to them if all they have is analytics around the digital path. Because when they go, as I call it, offline by making a phone call, they now know they have zero attribution unless they have a platform like Invoca to understand you know, what, what then actually happened to the customer when they abandoned, appeared to have abandoned their digital search. And so our customers know they don't have that information. Um, and they're, and, and what companies will typically do is they'll just say, oh, we assume they visited our website, but they actually have no idea. So we give our customers tremendous insights on the offline journey and you know what, what happened when they were online and then switched to offline to make that phone call. And then speaking of your customers there, what's the kind of average customer profile for you? Are we big, large corporates <clears throat> and selling to CIOs or are we kind of approaching from the bottoms up uh, in much more uh, smaller stage companies? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the company started uh, kind of w- w- with smaller companies, mostly performance marketers or, or affiliates that were publishing ads and driving leads and helping give them attribution to make sure they got paid for the, the leads that they served up to the, their large brands. Now, over the last two years, the company has really transitioned uh, almost completely selling to brand customers. We talk about brands. Those are you know, the, the ultimate uh, you know, customer of ours like Home Depot or, um, or DirecTV or you know, companies like that, uh, open table. So we're now targeting much more at the larger enterprises. When we, when we sell to Branzo, it's everything from small dental groups or law offices all the way up to these very large um, enterprises that are paying us, in some cases, millions of dollars. So we have transitioned more towards large brands, but we still also sell to smaller brands that are, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 person companies. I'm really intrigued then to discuss that kind of pivotal shift really from, from SMBs to, to enterprises. And how do you uh, transition between such differing stages of company without alienating one segment of the market? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question because the needs of, you know, LendingTree or SunTrust Bank or Celebrity Cruises, customers of ours, are far different than a, than a much smaller company. So, so the way we've done that is from a technology standpoint, we have a single platform that everybody uses the exact same platform. Uh, we're, we're providing updates to our technology about every three weeks. So we're constantly updating the technology and providing new features and functions. I would say that the, the customers, the SMB customers have simpler needs. They're, they typically have a smaller marketing technology stack if they have one at all. The needs uh, that they have for uh, that functionality um, is just much simpler, and it's it's actually much easier to service those customers. Uh, we have sales and support functions dedicated to those smaller customers, but then as our as companies scale up and get bigger, their needs become much more complex. Their volume is much much higher. They're 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 much more demanding, and they require more support and professional services. And so, uh, you know, we. I think we do a really good job of servicing, you know, what we classify, we kind of look at three different markets, small business, medium business, and then enterprise. Uh, they have different price points. They have different uh, kind of needs around the technology, um, and they have different needs in terms of support. And so we have developed those functions that serve each of those different markets. And, and as you said there, they do have vastly differing price points. And it, it's intriguing for me because we often hear about how products can um, 
if they have too low price, they can disincentivize B2, uh, large corporates from from entering transit transactions with them. So how do you uh, brace that pricing model with such variants of companies? There, there, there's kind of a base platform fee. And depending on the size of the company, we gauge it by number of employees. There's a base platform fee that ranges from low single digit thousands up to you know tens of thousands. And then on top of that, there is a uh, subscription fee that's based on the number of phone calls that we process through our platform. So that's kind of the variable part that makes it affordable for the smaller one and the larger one. Because a small company might be processing or um, you know, u- using us for 10,000 phone calls a year, and our larger customers are using us for millions and millions of phone calls per year. And so we graduate our pricing, pricing tiers based on the number of phone calls that we process for you. And the average price per call is not vastly different between the SMB customer and the large enterprise customers. I mean, as you get up to large volume, the price goes down a bit, but it's not a dramatic shift. Uh, and I'm intrigued then. Uh, you know, you're the, actually, I have to credit you, you're the first CEO we've had on the show uh, not who's not been a founder. We've had CMOs, we've had founders and CEOs. But I want to discuss then being a CEO and kind of jumping into and plummeting into a business that you're not the founder of. And how do you imprint your mark on it and imprint the culture that you want on it? You know, company culture is an ever-increasing buzzword. When, when plummeting in, how do you imprint that? on a company as well as you have done with Invoca? Yeah, it's a good question. And I also came to Invoca knowing very little about the marketing space. I've been used marketing technology as a user, but you know, not kind of at the, the level that we're obviously involved now. Probably one of the, I think one of the most important things is first, take time to understand the company, understand what needs to be done differently, because they don't bring in a new CEO if they think everything's great, right? So uh, what needs to be done differently and 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 just get to know the team and have converse have a lot of conversations with a lot of people and for the first 30 days or so just do a lot of listening um and i think if i look if you think about the situation in voca i was brought there because of my experience in enterprise software i've got about 30 years in enterprise software as invoca is making the shift from selling to smaller brands up to enterprises you know the company really needed to transition to doing all the things you need to do to sell to and support large enterprise brands. Uh, and so I think that once you kind of go in, you understand the needs of the company, you understand the team, I think you then begin to uh, you know, make the changes or do the things you think are necessary to get that company to the next, next, to the next stage. So I think it's, it's a lot of leading from the front. Uh, it's not just telling people what to do, being able to really dig in, understand it, explain to everybody in a lot of detail along the way, you know, what's going on, what we're going to do. And then as you're doing it, here's what we're doing. And then when we're done saying, okay, here's what we did. And just taking people on that journey with you and growing them as well. And I, people really, I think people really buy into that. And I'm really intrigued that you, you broke it down as to, to, kind of coming into a new firm and you said what differences do they expect from you because if they're bringing in a CEO they're, they're obviously looking for some changes so how did you analyze Invoca then and how did you come to the conclusion that you did as to what they wanted you to bring you know understanding enterprise software and knowing how should the company be structured organizationally mm-hmm. uh, what kind of talent should we have in the company uh, how should we be approaching our our prospects and then selling to our customers and supporting our customers having running having run two companies of fairly large scale 
uh, for a total of, of, of 15, 16 years between the two companies, it's, it's almost second nature just coming in and understanding what those functions should look like and how they should operate. Mm-hmm. And so, in, you know, in Voca, I just came in and, and again, took time to understand how they were doing certain things. In certain areas, I think, you know, for example, around marketing, I thought we were doing a tremendous job in terms of the way that we were organized in supporting customers and implementing our customers. Uh, you know, we were, we had, you know, some tremendous people and very passionate people and, you know, all, you know, great attitude, uh, great culture, but organized in a way where our very best and smartest person might be talking to a customer who's paying us a thousand dollars a year for two hours, which is, you know, not the best use of their, of their time and, 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 and their, and a company resource. So, you know, so it's really just looking at understanding where I think the company should be in these different areas in terms of their maturity and where the company was. And then deciding, you know, what we needed to do to uh, make changes where changes were required. Uh, and I'd love to dive into the 60 second slaster now. So I, I say a statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. So the biggest lesson you took from taking two companies public? Biggest lesson. Um, I, I would say that my first stint as CEO of a public company, I felt like I had to be attractive to everybody. And so in other words, I, I thought that we had to have a fit from a from a product solution standpoint for virtually any company and as a and, and when i was talking to investors i was i felt like i had to make every investor every money manager an investor in the company and i think as i you know did that longer and certainly with my second company i found that you know you need to understand what the company is good at and 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 to be very focused and right not try to do too many things and, and the same thing goes with investors. You need to select the type of investors that are the right ones for you. It's not just anybody who will give you money. It's somebody who understands your business, supports your business, has a long-term view. Um, and don't be afraid to not take meetings with people that you just don't think would be a good fit. How long did it take you and how did you build up then that framework for saying no? I think it came much more uh, in my second time as CEO. You know, I had had experiences with both customers and investors, that when I sat back and thought about it, I thought to myself, you know, we'd have been better off without those people as customers or, with, or without those investors as investors in the company. I guess it just to a certain point, it just was uh, a confidence that I built up that uh, from just having so much experience dealing with customers and investors to be able to say, you know what, this just isn't a good fit for either one of us. And, you know, let's just forget it. And I would have certain investors who every single time I would go to New York or Boston would try to see me every single time. And I would just say, you know, no, (laughs) you're just you're not the right investor for us. And I'm sorry. And it was and and it's interesting because a lot of them aren't used to that. And a lot of bankers aren't used to CEOs refusing or turning down meetings as well. I mean, and, and when you're when you're the CEO of a public company and you're with bankers meeting with investors, you're basically their product. And that's what I think you, you, you know, people, CEOs need to realize. You are a product that the bankers are selling to the investors. And if they take you to meet with an investor, even if that investor doesn't buy any of, of your company stock, they will return a favor to that banker for you to that meeting. And they'll, they'll place an order for them for a, for a different stock so that guy makes money for bringing you to that meeting. And when you realize that you're just a product for them, I think you start to become a lot more aware of your time and you you should be the one dictating how that time is being used, not not somebody else. 
So how did you go about selecting the people that set up the meetings? Because obviously you do have to meet some bankers sometimes. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a sad world, I know. But, but you do have to meet them sometimes. So how did you go about choosing those middlemen that chose the right people? So when we, I mean, when you, when you choose bankers, uh, you know, initially those, uh, those relationships develop either as your, sometimes people use them as a raising private money. Certainly as you take a company public, you need to have bankers. Uh, and you you basically choose the banks, the investment bankers you work with based on the analysts that are going to be covering your stock. Because honestly, you know, when you look at this, there's bulge bracket firms, there's these smaller boutique firms, there's there's firms that specialize in in in, in specific types of companies like just SaaS companies, et cetera. Um, and so you need to understand the ones that are right for your market. But once you once you do that, there's still a lot of bankers that all basically do the same thing. You know, it's very important that you get an analyst that understands your stock and, is, and understands your story. So initially, the bankers I would choose would be based on the analysts that will cover your stock. And then you get the relationship with whoever is the banker. And then, uh, you know, at my last company, we had, I don't know what it was, a dozen different uh, banks that followed us. We would just use different bankers in different cities and kind of rotate them, honestly. So... One one trip to New York, I might use you know Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Then then I, I'd go to Boston. I would use Canaccord, who was a Boston-based firm. I'd go to Chicago. I'd use William Blair, who was a who was a Midwest-based firm. And you know, a lot of times it was a, the guys you knew had the best relationships with investors. Because sometimes there's places you want to make sure you go. Like you say, you know, when we go to Boston, I want to make sure I talk to Fidelity. And when I go to Baltimore, I want to make sure make sure I talk to T Rowe. Um, and you want to make sure you have bankers uh, that you go on those trips with that can get you those meetings. And then, and then, final quick fire question is: What, what do you think is the most crucial characteristic of being a, a truly brilliant CEO? Is it the ability to lead, the ability to execute a vision, to describe a vision, to hire effectively? I think it's. I think it's all of those. I think <laughs> it is. I think it is absolutely. You need to have a vision. You need to be able to communicate that vision. And I think. You need to make sure that everybody in the company understands how their daily tasks contribute to the vision. And then you do need to surround yourself with a great team of people so that you can actually, if you needed to, you could literally step away from the business and the place is going to run itself because you've got such a, you've got such a great team around you. And, uh, you know, I, in a perfect world, you know, you have a staff of people who could all replace you, you know, each one of them. Uh, I don't think you ever get there, but I think you need to have confidence in yourself to understand that you are measured by the quality of your of your people and the job that they do. And not everybody understands that. Uh, and then and then not a quick fire, but the final question, and it's it's more of a kind of future futuristic one. It's the future for Invoker now. The fund raising is complete. Uh, as Mark said, you, you don't ever need to raise again if you don't need to. So so what's the roadmap ahead for Invoker? What's in the pipeline? What can we expect? So we are going to continue to focus to be the only company in this call intelligence space, focus on, on large enterprises and tightly integrated with a very large marketing technology stack. We're currently integrated with about 30 different companies, companies like Oracle and Adobe and Microsoft and Salesforce. So it's to be the product or the platform that digital markers for large enterprise brands go to for call attribution. So, so from a positioning standpoint, that's the focus. Uh, I think my focus also is by next year for the company to be IPO ready. That doesn't mean we're going to take the company public necessarily, but I want us to be ready as a company to to have that option. What does that uh, look like? What does IPO ready look like to you? 
So to me, it is, well, there's certain things you need to have just in terms of back office, right? So there's, you know, from a, from a financial standpoint, from a readiness standpoint, from a staffing standpoint, uh, from a governance standpoint, there's things you need to do just in the back office. You need to actually build a board that's not just investors and founders, where you need to have outside board members. So there's things you need to do to build your board. Um, and I think you need to have a certain, um, certain scale, a certain size, as well as a certain level of predictability in your business. Because if, if the business isn't of a certain size and if it's not predictable, you know, you just should not go public. Forget about how, quote, ready you might be with a good board and having the financial back end all figured out. You need to have predictability in your business. It's probably the single most important thing. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing the journey today. It really has been so fascinating to hear about Invoker. As I said to you, I was absolutely transfixed after reading Mark's article. Uh, so it really is brilliant to hear your side of the story. Yeah, and for those of you that don't follow Mark Schuster, both sides of the table, it's a fantastic blog. And you can find the link in the show notes. Awesome. There we go. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thanks, Harry. Please hang up and try again. What an incredible journey Mark has been on with Invoker since he joined them and so grateful to him for sharing the journey and experience with us today. Now, if you're loving the show and would like to submit questions ahead of time, then you can add me on Snapchat at hstebbings, that's hstebbings with two Bs, or you can hit up Jason on Twitter at JasonLK, that's for Jason Lemkin. And if you'd like the show notes for today, then head over to sasta.com, where you can also find all the past episodes of the official Sasta podcast. As always, it's been such a pleasure bringing you the show today and we cannot wait to bring you next week's show on monday